Martin? Um, I was going to jump right into the message, and then I was looking at my wife this morning as we kind of drove separately because we've got a couple different schedules right after church, and I just saw in her face there was something that, like, I need to talk about this. And um, for those of you that have been following, we, Brendan and I have been foster parents for around four and a half to five years, and we've had several children in our home. Um, Usually, uh, well, actually always, they were just within a year or two of age. They weren't much older than that. And we had a couple twin boys several years ago, and, and we thought that there was going to be a foster to adopt, and we did a lot of praying on it. And um, that, didn't, that didn't pan out as we thought it would, and God had different plans, and we've stayed in touch with mom. And then Lily uh, was brought into our lives a while back, and we started to uh, foster her, and... It's been a pretty cool process. She's become like one of our children, we feel like, and um, she's become a grandchild of my parents, and it's been pretty cool, and I, I don't think that foster care or adoption is for everyone. Um, it wasn't for me at the beginning, and then uh, the more I saw Brenda's heart into it, and it just became part of our family, it was a no-brainer for us. But anyway, uh, I noticed something in her face, and she just hasn't been herself the last week, and me being a dense man uh, from uh, Mars, I just said, what's going on with you? And she said, well, do you forget that we have a hearing on Wednesday? And the hearing on Wednesday with the county court is for, it's a termination hearing. Um, and so it's, the, it's the, like the main step to get to where we start the process of adoption. And so it's a little bit difficult because, you know, we've become acquaintances with the bio mom and dad, and we've tried to help them uh, figure some things out in life, and they haven't been totally receptive to it, but they're kind of trying a little bit. Uh, but we have to get up there, she has to get up there on Wednesday, and basically testify against, uh, and when I say against, she has to be honest with what she's witnessed over the last six months or so uh, about mom and dad's uh, availability and parenting skills and things like that. So she's under a lot of pressure and a lot of stress right now, and I'm, I'm coming before the saints to just ask that over the next three or four days during your uh, prayer and fasting time or your prayer time or just as you're driving along, just say a quick prayer uh, for, for the, God's will to be done in that whole situation, whatever God's will is, because we don't know. Um, and so that's just, I'm, I'm coming to you and asking you for the next three or four days if you can just say a, just say a prayer while you're driving, walking, thinking, whatever. Uh, just that God's will is done in the case of uh, Lily. So anyway, sorry to dump that on you, but that's what we're here for, right? We're here to, to uh, encourage one another daily, uh, to be there for one another. So let's get into the message. Uh, last week uh, was the, the celebrated annual celebrated Christian community holiday, which is the Resurrection Day. And uh, we spoke on the resurrection of Jesus. For those of you that were here and those of you that weren't, I'll give you a quick five-second, ten five-minute recap, and we talked about that, how Jesus had a resurrection that was very clear. Um, you know, he went to, the, went to the, the apostles and disciples and proved himself to be alive and had risen from the dead, and then there's a passage in Romans 6 that I went to, and it was basically the fact that Jesus had a resurrection, he was the, the firstborn of many, and that we too um, are called throughout Scripture to have a resurrection, and it talks about that often throughout the New Testament. And in the book of Romans, I went to Romans chapter 6, and we, when we talk about how it's kind of parallel to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he says in verse 4, Romans 6, 4, 
is that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, just as Christ was resurrected from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And so there's this, there's this parallel between the, the baptism of the people in, Ro uh, in Rome when he wrote to the saints in Rome, uh, when he says, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul's writing this letter to the church at Rome, and he says, you know, you can't continue to sin. You, you continue to sin. You died to sin. How can you live in sin any longer? You have been resurrected with Jesus. Don't you remember we were buried with Jesus through baptism? There's this symbol that happens when we get buried in the water of the river or the lake or the the grave, whatever, and this is in the context of Romans chapter 6, is that when you're buried with Jesus, you're also resurrected with Jesus. And so this concept of this resurrection, the very fact that Jesus rose from the, the grave, the very fact that Jesus rose from the grave, it requires every human being to make a decision. Every human being to make a decision. And every decision, every day we get up, we make a decision. We choose something. We get up and we choose to eat. My wife this morning, she made eggs with, with uh, peppers and onions and some other fr uh, vegetable that mixed in the eggs and then pancakes. And, or we can jump into that bowl of frosted mini-wheats or jump into Captain Crunch, which was my college bowl of choice, was the Captain Crunch. We can choose to do that. We can choose after we eat breakfast, we can choose to go to work or go to school and gain knowledge. Or we can choose to sit in front of a computer and get on social media for the next four hours and completely ruin the beginning of our day. Uh, we have this, uh, this choice every day after we go to work or after we do this. What are we going to think about? What are we going to listen to? What are we going to read? What are we going to talk about? Who are we going to interact with? And so at some point when life starts to go down, when our mind starts to go down, we don't make, have to make as many choices, but until the day that we are incapable or dead, we have to make choices every single day. And I believe our culture has chosen to teach us through the power of the other side that we can have Jesus as our Savior. Don't miss this. We can have Jesus as our Savior, but we don't have to have Him as our Lord. Would you agree with that, brother? That we can have Jesus as our Savior, but not as our Lord. Someone says, someone says I'm a Christian. I'm like, okay. So I look at the fruits of someone's life and I go, are you a Christian or are you someone that just professes that Jesus rose from the dead? Because there's a difference. And so in Matthew 7, uh, a long time ago, I read this passage and there's this, it's very, Jesus is very uh, pointed in this passage. And we're going to read a lot of passages today. Um, if you guys come here often, you'll know that I'm not smart enough to tell a bunch of stories and entertain you, so I have to go to the scriptures and let God do it. And I just get to be the, I get to be the conduit of that. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, on the, the longest message that he, we have recorded, that he preached the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, he says something in verse 21 that I want to read here, verse through 23. Not everyone who says to me, and it's with the, the pretense and the, the idea that just because Jesus is your Savior doesn't necessarily make him your Lord. So he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, 
Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So he actually calls people that taught in the name of Jesus evildoers. He called people who cast out demons and performed miracles in the name of Jesus evildoers. He says, I never knew you. You're an evildoer, even though you did those three things. Now, I don't say that, I don't read this passage to scare you, but I will tell you it scares me. Because guess who I teach in the name of? Jesus. I haven't performed miracles that I can speak of, and I haven't driven out demons that I know of, but I know that I have prophesied in the name of Jesus Christ, and I don't want to go on that day of judgment and have him say, I never knew you. You did not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so years ago, and this isn't in my message, but it just came to me. Years ago, I looked up the, the passage about, okay, what is God's will? Is there anywhere in Scripture that says, this is God's will? And in first, I think it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the, uh, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will. Here we go. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. There's this process that we go from being justified, and then we're sanctified, and then on that day of judgment, we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are glorified. And he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should... Uh, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passion and lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Therefore, who, he, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So I feel like there's this, this teaching, and it's very prominent in Christianity today, in Protestantism today. There's this, there's this teaching out there that says, if you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, if you acknowledge that he rose from the dead, then you're good. You're saved. I'm a Christian. And I read these passages, and, I, and, and I'm going to read some other passages as well, that I don't think that's what God has intended for your life. I don't believe that's what God has intended for my life as I look in the scriptures, as I look at what the, the author Paul or the Gospels uh, had written to these different churches scattered throughout the different parts of the world. Now, I believe Christians are called to a totally different level. You know, we've got the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament. I believe Christians are called to a totally different level. So I coach baseball, and I've been playing baseball since I was about five my kids of all boys have all played from the time they're about six or seven. And they start out at T-ball. And then they go from T-ball to caps or minors and then majors. And then they play some, some travel ball stuff. And then they get into high school. And then if they're, if they're lucky enough, they go play in college. And then if they're really lucky, they can go play uh, professionally. You get drafted and make a few bucks and play baseball. Now, when you look at the difference between someone when they're six years old on a, in t-ball and they raise themselves up to that point where they're getting paid professionally, I've known several professional baseball players, there is such a difference between someone that played high school or college and then that next level of playing professionally. It's just different. They're sharper, they're stronger, they're quicker, they can hit better, they can throw better, they can throw where they wanted to, they can run faster. And all of these things came from 
this work ethic and this desire to be the very best they could be. And I can remember I went to school with a guy named Jason Phillips, and he gave me a ride home. He was a senior in high school, and I was a junior in high school, and, and I was a young junior, and so he's giving me a ride after practice home. And I said, what are you going to do when, you, when you, you get older, Jason? He says, I'm going to play professional baseball. And I said, really? That's kind of a, that's a tall order. I mean, statistically, 0.0296% of little leaguers ever make it. Uh, and that's basically one, one in 4,000 little leaguers will make it to play professional baseball. That's uh, more likely to get struck by lightning. Actually, did you know that? You're more likely to get struck by lightning than play professional baseball if you played little league baseball. And I said, so what, what, makes, you, you know, what makes you think you're going to do that? He says, because I'm going to do it. And he knew he was going to do it. And no one that I played with in my entire career worked harder than Jason Phillips. Played for the New York Mets, played for the Toronto Blue Jays, and played for the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. No one worked harder than that guy. He was constantly working on his gift, his trade, his skill to get to where he wanted to go. Now, some of you may be going, oh man, is Nate talking about work salvation? Is Nate talking about, oh, you've got you've to do this and this and this? And I want you to bear with me as I read about seven or eight scriptures here about what is God's intent for our lives. What is God's role? What is his goal? What is his will for our lives in Christ Jesus? And so if you go with me to Colossians, if you have your Bibles, great. If you don't, just follow with me. We haven't put it up on the board. But um, do we even have a board? No. That's why you got to have this with you. <laughs> so in Colossians chapter 3, again, Paul is writing to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossians. We've got to remember when we're reading the scripture, the context of who he's writing to, and why he's writing it, and what's the context of it, and what's the intent, and all these things. So in Colossians chapter 3, the, the, the top of the paragraph is rules for holy living. He's saying these are some rules for you as Christians to live holy. And he talks about, you know, wives do this, husbands do this, children do this, fathers do this, slaves do this. And then he says in the context of all of these basic fundamental teachings of if you're a wife, if you're a husband, if you're a child, if you're a slave, if you're a father, he says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This morning I was 8 o'clock, I started getting text messages from a client, and I was talking to Ryan about it this morning, and it just almost sent me to a bad place. And here I am trying to, you know, highlight some things and put stuff, finalize it, and I'm going over it, I'm praying about it, I'm thinking about it, and, and I'm going, here's this guy that can't wait 18 hours to start texting me these things. He's got to just bombard me on a Sunday morning. And I, I had to remind myself that you have, he's not a Christian man, doesn't profess it. I have to remind myself that there are people that don't understand. It was C.S. Lewis who said, heaven understands hell, but, heaven, but hell does not understand heaven. We can look on this side of the gate and say, they just don't get it. They're, they're not understanding of what uh, God has in store for them. But then I had to remind myself that whatever I do, work at it with all my heart. Whatever I do, I need to act like I'm doing it for God. I need to be a representative of Christ when I do it, even when it's hard. Even when it's hard, I have to be a representative for Christ. There's a passage in Ephesians, which is probably one of the most misquoted passages in the entire New Testament. It's the most one of the most misunderstood passages in the entire New Testament. 
And Paul, again, is writing to what he would call the saints in Ephesus, to those that are faithful in Jesus Christ. So he's writing to Christian people. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. A lot of people like to enter a word in there, for it is grace alone that you have been saved, where I, I do believe that, but I think we need to define grace in the word alone, but that's a whole other sermon. But he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So what he's saying is, you guys cannot get salvation by doing so many good things that God says, I owe this man salvation. Because now his bucket is full of good works. It's, his bucket is fuller than good works. Therefore, because it's, it's ways more than his bad deeds, his bad works, that now uh, I owe him salvation. And I think Paul is addressing that in Ephesians. He says, you were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your sins, which you used to live. You follow the ways of this world. But it is by grace you have been saved. It's not by this law keeping that you are saved. And then he says, for we, he's writing again to the saints in Ephesus, for we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is a product that is fabricated. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. It says, for you are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And that word uh, created means to be manufactured, fabricated. You are not your own. It's like a proprietor, a proprietor of a manufacturing plant has something, and he created each Christian in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this concept that we came down and we said a prayer, we put our hand on the TV, we're baptized, we asked Jesus in our heart, whatever you believe is the ending point is inaccurate. It's inaccurate because it says here that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If I were to bring somebody on in my company and say, hey, you're, you're hired, here's your salary. And they said, great, awesome. I appreciate you bringing me into your family. And then they sat there every day and did absolutely nothing. Are they part of the company? I, not for long. <laughs> not for long. I mean, Jesus talks about pruning and, and making sure it's more fruitful. And so, so God prepared human beings, Christians, to do works for His glory, which we're going to see in a minute, which He prepared in advance for us to do. So if you flip over to 1 Corinthians, or back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, you see this passage that Paul, again, going back to uh, the very beginning of the first letter to the church at Corinth, and he says, Grace and peace to you, our Lord, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. This is to those, I'm writing to those in the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be holy. So he's writing to Christian people here. And in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. Do it for the glory of God. We are pointing to God and it is for His glory. And it goes back to Ephesians where it says it doesn't, 
It's, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, not by doing all these things that you can say, hey, look at me, God. It's so people can see our works and, say, and they look at you and say, hey, look at God. Look at Him. Look at who He is. Look at what He created. Look at His power. And I've said this before, and people say, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to ask God a few questions. Really? Really? How do you know you're going to be able to speak? How do you know you're not going to be on bend a knee going, I can't even look. We, we don't know. It says, no, I have seen, nor ear has heard. Mine has conceived what God has in store for those who love Him. We don't know. When you look at this thing that, that Steve has been sending out about the Orion Nebula, I don't know if you've gotten that email, but that thing that was out on uh, Purdy Mesa, you saw it? That thing at Purdy Mesa, and you look in the sky in the Orion Nebula, and you just look at, you look at what God has done, and then to have the arrogance to say, when I get up there, I'm going to talk to, both me and God are going to have a conversation. Do you know who you're talking about? You're, you're talking about the creator of the universe who spoke this into existence. So what we do, we do for the glory of God. In Philippians chapter uh, 2, there's a passage that I think is, is rich. In Philippians 2, and I use this passage oftentimes when people say, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think I might be in the wrong uh, passage here. No, I don't think I am. Yeah, I'm in the right passage. I, I use this oftentimes. I, I meant Romans 8.28. We'll look at that in a minute. But in, in Philippians chapter 2, when Paul is writing again to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, you notice there's this pattern. There's these books that are written, these letters that are written to Christians scattered throughout the area. Philippi, Colossus, Corinthians, Thessalonica. You've got all of these regions that these writers are writing letters to led by the Holy Spirit. And he says to the, the church at Philippi, after, after saying your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, uh, taking the very nature of a servant. So he just gets done talking about your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and uh, every tongue shall confess. Excuse me. And then he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God, for it is God, for it is God, the creator of the universe, universe who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It is God who works in you to give you the desire, the will, the desire to act, to work according to His good purpose or His pleasure. We see that when he's writing this, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is the beginning of knowledge? To fear God and keep His commandments. What is the whole duty of man? To fear God and keep His commandments. There is a pattern throughout the scriptures about the reverence we're to have for this King of Kings, this Creator of everything. And oftentimes, Christian teachers are saying, just recognize He exists. Call on His name occasionally. And you'll be fine. And I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see that in the written Word. I see that in teaching but I don't see that in the written word. 
And so when I stand on judgment day, when I go before the throne and go before the, th the Father, I want to be able to say, but Father, it is written. Because that's what my Savior did when He was tempted by the devil. But Father, it is written. It is written. If I have to, and I know Jesus is going to defend my cause, I understand that. But I've got to be able to, in my own conscience, be able to say, Father, it is written. This is why I taught what I taught. This is why I believed what I believed. This is why I lived the way I lived, because it is written. And we're being bombarded with teaching, especially in this culture that says, do whatever you want. Live however you want. Do your will, because Jesus' grace is sufficient. And I don't think that's what it says in here. In fact, that's not what it says in here. That's not what it teaches. If you go back to Romans, we start in Romans 6, but if you go a little further to Romans chapter 8, and it's that question when people say, you know, why do good things happen, or bad things happen to good people? Why do these struggles happen? Why are we going through this thing with this adoption? Why do we have to go before the courts and listen to these people that are completely of the world challenge, you know, what we're doing in our family and things like that. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, and we know, there's this confidence in that word, and we know that in all things, it doesn't say all bad things, and it doesn't say all good things. It says all things works, all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to what? His purpose. His purpose. Not our purpose. Not our will. Not what we want to do. But His purpose. And when you look at these passages that are constantly telling us what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to think, I believe it is important to recognize that our lives are meant for His glory. And when we serve God... To give Him glory, who benefits? We do. We benefit. It's not like God said, hey, I want you to do what uh, I want you to do so your life is miserable. I don't think that's what God is saying. Well, are we going to have some persecution and some hardships and some temptations? Of course we are. It's in the Scriptures. It's been there since the beginning. And it's going to be there until Jesus comes back. Hurry, right? Come back. We're ready. We want you to come back. But it's for His purpose that all things are created for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. When we know what His purpose is in our lives and we follow His will, we are the ones that benefit for it. And I want to imagine the power that we have as Christians when we recognize what God has done. When he says, for God did not give them a, a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And I look at some of these people in the Bible, and I go, man, they lived some pretty radical lives. These guys lived radical lives. And if you look at the Apostle Paul, and you see that he was called in Acts chapter 9, if you go back to Acts, we're going to spend a little time in Acts, 
If you go back to Acts chapter 9, you see that Paul was there and he was persecuting Christians and, and they stoned Stephen and they laid their, their, their clothes at the man of a feet, a feet named Saul. And then and Saul is on his way to Damascus and he's going to go arrest some Christians and give letters to the Christians so they can be arrested. And while he's going, God knocks him down and it doesn't say horse, but people say knocks him off his horse. I'm like, well, it doesn't say horse, but maybe he was on a horse, maybe he wasn't, but he was knocked down. And he looks up and, and he, he's, he gets... This voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, who are you, Lord? He goes, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up, persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he goes into the city. He's led into the city and he goes to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And it says here, Ananias says, Lord, I have heard many reports about this man, Saul, and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And the response from God was this. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul is commissioned by God to go to the Gentiles and to go to the rest of Israel and to show that Jesus is the Messiah. That is what he is given. That's the job that he is given by God. And I was looking at Paul's life and I go, man, this guy had some serious hardships. I mean... I've had some pretty bad days. I mean, this morning wasn't the greatest morning I've had in a long time either with these constant messages from a, a client of mine. And I should have—I left it in the phone in the truck because I, I didn't want to have it like five minutes before I got up here, another dumb text, which is what they are. Sorry. For, but in, in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about, again, the second letter. He says, what, what anyone else dares boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he begins to talk about, this is the Apostle Paul, begins to talk about what he's gone through as a Christian. As a Christian. I don't want you to hear me say that we need to go get 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. What I want you to hear me saying is what Paul's attitude is after he writes these letters. And what happens in his mindset as he's, as he's living out his Christian life when he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, bandits, countrymen, Gentiles, city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face a daily pressure my concern for all the churches. Listen to that life that this guy lived. This life that he lived is I was in danger, I was beaten, I was stoned, I was shipwrecked, I was flogged, I was exposed to death. Man, what a miserable life. Miserable. But then when you kind of just go a little bit further in this letter, you see this attitude that Paul has. And I believe this attitude that he has, and we're going to see the same with Peter and John, this attitude that he has is because he recognizes eternity is more important than the temporal. 
He's recognizing that the longevity of where he's going to spend the rest of his life forever with God is way better than the pleasures of sin in this world for a short time. At the end of this letter, he says, Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be one of mine. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with the holy kiss. All the saints send their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And I look at the way this is written on the final greetings and I feel like in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he's, he's saying, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from false brothers and I've been in danger from this and that. And then he goes, oh, finally, brothers, be one of mine. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. It's this mentality that he has that he says, God did not give me a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and self-discipline. Because he knew back in Acts 9, when it says, Go, this man is my chosen instrument. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He knew that his goal, his role, his purpose in life was to serve the King of Kings. And all the other trials and the temptations and the tribulations that he went through were just like, ah, whatever. And you look in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas and you have the same kind of story as how they were beaten. And it says, and, I mean, do you understand what flogging is? These guys were beaten in Acts chapter 16. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. These men, these servants of God, were stripped down and then beaten by the magistrates. After they, had, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. They had been beaten. They had been severely flogged. They had been stripped naked. They had been thrown into this prison for preaching Jesus. And then around midnight... They were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> Kumbaya. Oh, man, that one hurt. Kumbaya. They're singing praises to God while they just had been beaten and flogged severely. Are you grasping the mindset and the power of these men? And they recognized the power was coming from the Spirit of God. For he did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. That's the spirit that God has put in Christians. The same spirit. It's not a different spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit that he put in us. And so our goal and our role and our purpose is to glorify the King of Kings. And when we live our life that way, I 100% believe in my mind that all this tough stuff that we go through, you go... Man, I'm looking eternity here. I'm looking, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the finish line. I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the gates. I'm looking for Jesus to come back. This stuff, this doesn't matter. And Paul was not the only one that experienced the same level of peace and joy and understanding. He's not the same one that experienced that. You have Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. It's, a, it's an awesome story how Peter and John, they get in trouble for preaching the name of Jesus and so they're beat and then they go before and they go before the Sanhedrin and then they throw them in jail again and they're in jail again and then uh, all of a sudden the, the, uh, the, the doors come open. And if you look at Acts chapter 5 starting in verse 12, 
It says the apostles perform all these miraculous signs and wonders, and all the people's, uh, all the believers used to meet together in the Solomon's colonnade. And it continues on. It says when the high priests and all the associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So an angel of the Lord opened up the jail. And they brought them out and they go, said, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this. So they were thrown in jail. An angel of the Lord opened the gates. They went out and they began to talk about Jesus again. And they said, man, these guys that you guys threw in jail, they weren't there. I mean, they weren't there anymore. It was locked, but the guards were standing at the doors. But then we opened it, no one was inside. And they look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. So they brought them in to the Sanhedrin again. Peter and John are brought back into this situation with these uh, religious leaders. And look at that. They said, why are you doing this? You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied this. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might uh, give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Gamaliel says, guys, you don't want to do that. If he's not the real deal, then it'll go away. And then he says, after Gamaliel speaks, in verse 40, he says, his speech, Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Have you ever looked up a flogging? Look up religious flogging. It's not pleasant. It's a beating. I believe it is beaten, scourged, and thrashed is the word that's used there. These guys were flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they flog them, said, don't you speak in the name of Jesus again. You guys can go now. They were scourged, they were thrashed, they were beaten, they were flogged. Do you know the response of Peter and John, the next verse? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they had been considered or counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. These guys had been beaten and flogged and they left rejoicing. Where does that power come from? For these guys to, to recognize that they had been worthy and counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus, that power comes from within, which comes from the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God put that power in these men. And when I read these Bible studies and I read these stories and, and, and I, about the early church and the apostles, I just see a major difference in our church today than the biblical model we see. I see a major difference in the belief today and the teaching today that we get. We look at these stories and go, oh, that was cultural. That was back then. Yeah, it was. I mean, if you flog somebody today or you beat somebody today, they're going to be in prison. I get that they're in a different cultural thing. But there's this, there's this, this Jewish philosopher, theologian, his name's Elijah Del Medigo. He was uh, in the 15th century. And I did a little bit of checking on to see if this was an accurate quote or not, but this was the quote that I got. The brutal fact is this. The average person living in a Western... This was in the 15th century... Okay, this was, what, what's that, 16, 17, 1600, 600 years ago? 600 years ago, he writes this. 
The brutal fact is this. The average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He, she has little family, few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and certainly no Christ. He, she acts mostly as a ritual of economic activity, a number on a balance sheet. Are you getting that? This was five, six hundred years ago. This just Jewish philosopher and theologian says the brutal fact is this, the average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. They don't have family, community, friends, and certainly they have no Christ. They're just on a balance sheet is all they are. Just chasing the dollar, constantly putting that balance sheet on there. And I, when I look at what's happening in our culture, when I look what's happening in our country, when I look what's happening in our churches, I go, man, there, there's a lot we need to be ready for. I mean, we need to have our oils, our lamps filled with oil. Because we're, I think a lot of times Christians are chasing, I mean, chasing the wrong thing. And, and, and a question I've asked myself is, do I consider my faith a burden? But the more I seek God, the more I ask of His will, the more I go, God, what do you want from me? What do you want in my life? Who do you want me to be around? Who do you want me to spend time with? Where do you want me to go in business? What do you want me to do with, help with the church and my role in the church? And it's always asking, God, how can I bring glory to you in the kingdom of heaven? Do I want to wait a couple years before I really start serving God? Do I really want to wait a few years? I mean, do you, have you seen the sky... I'm picturing it now, laying with Titus, uh, heading down towards Utah, outside of on, on BS Road in Glade Park, and we laid on our backs for about 10 minutes, and we just took in the completely unlight polluted sky of man's light. And all we saw were stars. Do you remember that? It was awesome. It, it put me in so much awe to just lay there on my back in September or October and just look up and go. And then you see shooting star after shooting star. And then you see a, you know, the big dipper and the little dipper and you're gone. What, what am I that you are mindful of me? <laughs> what am I that you even know I exist? And we see like a sand a grain of sand to what he has created. It's insane how awesome this God is that we serve. And when we start recognizing the power that he gives us through his Holy Spirit, when we recognize what we can do to serve him, I believe it opens up a world that some of you have never even peeked into. You've never peered into it. You have no concept, and I don't say that as being mean, I'm saying there's a, there's a, there is a power out there that is a choice that you can get a hold of. And you can serve the king of kings. It's, oh man. It's a confidence in who we belong to. That's what it is. It's a confidence in who we belong to. From six years old or one year and three months old to, to the oldest one in the room. 
We belong to a king, the king of kings, with more power than, than we can fathom. I believe if we start recognizing that, recognizing that we are servants and slaves to the most powerful thing we can even fathom, who loves us, and, and actually there's a passage that says that he's, he searches to and fro. It's in the Old Testament. I believe it's in, I think it's in Daniel. He says, or Second Chronicles. He says, my eyes uh, are searching to and fro to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He is searching to and fro to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You go, well, how is that possible? Have you looked at the sky on a night when there's no light pollution? It's possible that this God can search to and fro and go, oh, this, this one right here, his heart's committed to me. I'm going to give him some strength and some power. Oh, there's another one right there. And he's, he's, he's going around looking for people to strengthen. That is an awesome God. And we do it according to Romans chapter 8. We do it for His purpose. For His purpose. His will. His glory. And we're the benefactor. I hope this message uh, came across as I intended it to. Um, I appreciate you guys praying for the situation at hand with our family. It's a pretty awesome thing and a pretty big responsibility, but I think God's put it on our hearts to do this and we're going we're gonna to continue to seek it. Um, I pray for you guys this week, every one of you guys. I pray that uh, you start recognizing the power that God has given you or that is at least available to you if you haven't yet got a hold of it. The power is more than the more you can imagine. So, who has a communion this morning? Got it? Alright. Bless, bless the church body and Okay.